evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, February 6, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together, and we want to welcome you to tonight's program. We have Mr. Sid Sperry. He is uh, author or co-author, I guess, of the SPI um, Index, and the, what basically that is is we're talking about ice storms tonight. Uh, Sid, along with one of his counterparts, has uh, come together and uh, put some science behind this index where we can talk about the severity of the ice storms. And uh, if there's an ice storm ever um, coming towards your area, we'd be able to, with uh, with his input, uh, talk about the uh, major effects that it could present to your area. So uh, we have Sid on with us tonight as our guest. And as always on our live program, we would love to have you interact with us tonight. We are streaming on Facebook Live Periscope and on our YouTube page. So if you would ever uh, want to comment or ask a question, you can do that by just uh, submitting that in the uh, little text box there. And we'll be monitoring those programs uh, or those um, those programs throughout the, the show tonight. And if you have any questions, we'll be sure to um, get those um, asks for you. And if you're listening on the podcast version, uh, we will let Sid at the end of the show talk about uh, his website, maybe a social media account that you can follow and get the uh, latest information on the uh, the ICE um, index. So uh, we're happy to have Sid with us tonight. This is the uh, 264th show of the Carolina Weather Group. We were just talking about that. It's hard to believe that we are over 200, but we are. So uh, we welcome you tonight, and it's uh, been pretty warm out there. And we're going to talk about the warm weather uh, just today. The uh, climate report was issued for the year 2018. So um, at the 9 o'clock hour, we will go further in details with that. But talking about that news, I'll toss it to James Barton, who has the latest in the weather news for the Carolinas. James? Scotty, thank you very much. That's right. We're going to be talking about those warm temperatures that you can still see scrolling at the bottom of your screen. And if you thought today was warm, wait until tomorrow. It's hard to believe it's actually February. But speaking of climate, our uh, governor here in North Carolina, Roy Cooper, was in Washington, D.C. today testifying before a House committee about climate change. And if you're a fan of the Carolina Weather Group, you know that during the last two weeks, our shows have talked about climate reports from last year and recent years. And we've been taking a look at a lot of these big milestone events that have been making the news. The governor was asked a little bit about that and a little bit about just the frequency of all these uh, big weather events that are making the climate logs and how they are affecting particularly rural communities. Take a listen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Governor uh, Cooper, Governor Baker, for being here today. Uh, you know, every day when I come to work uh, for the people of uh, California's Central Valley, you know, I think about how what we do is going to affect their lives, particularly in these rural communities that I, that I represent. And while it's clear as day that climate change is real, according to the National Climate Assessment, rural communities in particular face more challenging obstacles responding to climate change because they're so highly dependent on our natural resources. And certainly in California, we've seen those direct impacts, the, the heat waves, the fires, the droughts. And uh, we all know it's only going to get worse unless we do something about it. But my particular uh, uh, concern and interest is really the linkage between climate change and public health, and particularly public health, how it's going to affect our rural communities. From the rural perspective, farmers are getting hit hard by the effects of climate change. And they know it, and you hear from them, 
because in North Carolina now, we have made a significant state appropriation to get some immediate help to our farmers, many of them hit by flood after flood, storm after storm, who are now beginning to make the decision, this is just not worth it. It is not worth it to be in this business. That should be a frightening result, not only for, for my state, but for the rest of the country and the world. A new map out today complements exactly what they were talking about there uh, at that congressional hearing. This is out from NOAA talking about the 2018 billion dollar weather year that we saw. All these weather events that have now made their way into the record books as climate disasters, including Hurricane Florence here in North Carolina. Also out today, the statistic that 2018 closing the books as the fourth warmest year on record behind only you guessed it, 2016, 2015, and 2017. I want to bring back in the panel, see if they had a chance to take a look at this map and some of the new data out today. Uh, Scotty, what are, what are your thoughts when you, when you look at a map like this? We've seen it for past years, and it seems like every year we're getting a map eerily similar like the year before. Yeah, in fact, uh, our good buddy Brad Panovich was talking about this on air tonight. Uh, 2016, 17, and 18 has been four of the most uh, damaging years uh, billion-dollar damage in years for, for natural disasters. But it seems like the Carolinas, at least over the past two or three years, has been hit by not one but two hurricanes each of the years. So uh, the tropics remain active, and uh, we also saw uh, severe weather, uh, which seems to be coming around a little bit quicker and quicker every year. So um, that, along with the, the drought out in California, I, get, I know the, uh, the wildfires out there caused a lot of damage as well. So it uh, just kind of show you that uh, the climate is, uh, is very active and uh, it's just going to keep us on our toes here as we uh, come into the 2019 season. And that hurricane season will be here before we know it. Teasing ahead, uh, we will have a soundbite from the director of the National Hurricane Center. They're meeting this week with FEMA and local emergency managers. We'll check in to see how their conference is going in a little bit. But, you know, it's not just hurricanes and it's not just floods. We've even had in years past ice disasters that affected the agriculture community. And that came to mind when I heard the governor's soundbite. And with that, Scotty, let me th throw it back over to you because I think that brings us into tonight's discussion about ice accretion. Yeah, thank you, James. And, and Sid Sperry is on with us tonight. Uh, he is the co-author of the SPI Index. And basically what that is, is um, Sid, along with one of his counterparts there in Oklahoma, has come up with this index uh, that kind of uh, helps out forecasters, utility companies, as impending ice storms are about to affect the area. It kind of puts together the ice accumulation, uh, temperatures, wind speeds, and all that, and, and kind of formulates it into an index of severity one to uh, to five and kind of just shows us uh, which areas could be the hardest hit when an ice storm does a hit. And I was just uh, looking at the uh, map there. I think we had two or three winter weather events uh, last year that caused over a billion dollars of damage. So kind of a timely interview. So Sid, I'll bring you in. We appreciate you joining us. And um, Sid, you are there in the, uh, the great state of Oklahoma and we were talking just a little bit ago. You, in fact, today, your state saw some uh, some ice problems in the northern part of Oklahoma. We did have, and thank you, Scotty. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be with you all tonight, uh, you and your colleagues. Uh, I will tell you, I have the utmost appreciation and respect for those who uh, have their meteorology degrees or other climate science degrees. Uh, me, I have an English degree with a minor in speech communications, and, and so communications is kind of my bag. 
but uh, really appreciate you having me on and for extending the invitation to me to share a little bit tonight uh, about the SPIA index. Yeah, it's it's a really cool index. And uh, for you weather uh, junkies out there who may be following the weather, you may be uh, already uh, put on to the, uh, the SPIA index. But if you're new tonight and you live here in the Carolinas or anywhere and uh, you don't know about this, hopefully we'll be able to give you some information to help you better prepare uh, for the next ICE event. And we've had our fair share here in the Carolinas uh, just this year. So, um, Sid, before we get into kind of the index and stuff, we always ask this question for our, uh, our first-time guest is, uh, you told us you had a, an English uh, degree and some communication degree, but how did you kind of translate that into, uh, I know you, you don't have a, a meteorology degree, but you're now into the weather field. So how did uh, how did that all take place? Well, you and I spoke earlier about the passions that we have, and and this is a true story. I grew up in a very small town in northwestern Oklahoma, a little town called Gage, Oklahoma. A population when I was growing up there was about 600 people. Uh, closest town, nearby town that had any sizable population was a place called Woodward, Oklahoma. But Gage had a um, flight service station. We had a nice airport there and it was a cross-country fuel stop for aircraft. So I got to know the people that ran the, the Federal Aviation Administration's flight service station and as one of their uh, offerings that they would advise pilots on weather. So even back in my junior high and high school years when I was doing work at the airport, uh, I would make sure that I stayed in touch with those folks at the flight service station and had the opportunity to talk to them about weather. Uh, if there's one thing I wish, here, here I am, age 62, if I had a passion, it would be to get into meteorology, but uh, who knows, maybe I'll go there one of these days. But for now, I'll listen to you guys. You're the experts. Hey, it's never too late to dip your <laughs> toes in the in the weather world. Well, uh, Sid, let's talk about the index and uh, basically what it is and how it came about. I know we were talking before before the show, uh, you had a help of a few friends there in Oklahoma. You had a vision and how did that vision get turned into this, the SPIA index? Well, as you know, Oklahoma um, is kind of a mixing bowl, if you will, for all kinds of weather. And unfortunately, on the utility side, this is my 38th year to be in the electric utility business. Um, so ice storms are one of the most devastating kinds of disasters that utilities, especially those with an abundance of overhead power lines or communication utilities that still have overhead lines, uh, it can be very impacting to those systems. So this all started in December of 2006. We'd had some pretty devastating ice storms in Oklahoma in the year 2000, also in 2002. And um, so there were back-to-back -back ice storms that hit the Oklahoma Panhandle uh, within about eight days of each other in uh, December of 2006. So I'm driving the back roads of Cimarron, Texas, and Beaver counties, doing some work with FEMA and our cooperatives that are based out there. And as I'm seeing all this, uh, all these broken poles and broken conductor and and all of the utility lines and communication lines that had been brought down by these back-to-back -back ice storms, it, the thought occurred to me that National Weather Service does a great job of forecasting. I have, again, immense respect for those folks. 
So my idea was, why couldn't we marry up, if you will, the conditions that it take to it takes to bring utility lines down uh, in an ice storm with a forecast? We can't stop the ice, obviously, from forming, at least not yet. But um, we can give a heads up to those utility and communications crews that have those type of facilities and allow them to prepare and hopefully get the power back on and, and restored in a much more timely fashion, uh, perhaps, than what's been done in the past. So um, I took that, I guess you could call it preparedness tool idea uh, to Dr. Renee McPherson, and she asked me to, uh, at the University of Oklahoma, and she asked me to have a conference with, at that time, uh, the late Dr. Ken Crawford, who I uh, had enormous respect for. And I remember very clearly being in his office as the state climatologist, and, and I asked Dr. Ken, I said, well, here's my idea, and I kind of laid out the vision. And he looked at me really funny, and he said, Sid, you don't know what you've done here. And I really, truly thought he was going to tell me, Sid, you're just whack, wacky. You, you, you don't know what you're doing here. You, you have no meteorology background. But he was very kind to me. And he said, Sid, you don't know what you've done. There's nothing like this out there. And he said, I would urge you to go and speak to the meteorologist in charge at um, the Tulsa office of the National Weather Service, a gentleman by the name of Steve Piltz, who's the MIC. And because he had not only an emergency management background, but he deals a lot in impacts. So uh, very quickly, I, I went, that was in late December of 2006. I met with Steve Piltz the first time, the first week in December of January, I'm sorry, Dece January of 2007. And within an hour and a half, as I related to Scotty, we took my algorithm and began to generate um, uh, images that really the the parts of the algorithm haven't changed that much today from what we initially started. But with the help of Steve and also my good friends at, uh, um, at the National Weather Service office in Norman and, of course, the state climatology office, uh, that's how this thing came about. So you mentioned the conditions that bring down the utility poles and all those different things that affected um, your line of work with the utility uh, companies. But what exactly are those conditions? Is it, it obviously it's not just ice accumulations, but you mentioned several other things and algorithm. What plays into that? Well, the primary factors of the algorithm uh, of primary, of course, are the amount of ice that. Uh, accumulates or accretes on the power line itself. Most power poles are in the 35 to 55 foot range as far as height is concerned. Um, and it can have uh, conductor sizes that may be as small as your pinky, uh, but could go up to almost as big as your fist. So it, it just depends on the load that's on the power line. But what was very evident in all of the ice storms that I researched, and this goes back a long way, even into the 1950s. Now, what was very evident was one of the biggest factors that folks just don't really think about too much are the wind speeds. And it's not wind gusts, it's sustained winds. And the reason for that is because 
when ice begins to accumulate on a power line and with just even a gentle breeze, it begins to take a shape that's very similar to an airplane wing. So if you, if you did a cross section of a power line uh, and there's most of the time there's a steel center in, in a power line with aluminum strands wrapped around that steel, it's called ACSR that stands for aluminum conductor steel reinforced. But if you did a cross section of that with say even a, a quarter of an inch of ice because of gravity and because of wind, you would notice that that ice begins to take the shape of an airplane wing. And it works exactly that same way. When wind flows across that surface, it provides lift. And on a single phase line, which only has two wires, if you will, to it, those that they, they don't rise and fall in harmony. They, they, they begin to do this kind of action up and down on a three phase line where you have four wires involved. It, it's, it's what we call galloping. The, the line literally looks like a jump rope going up, up, up and down. And that can rise and fall anywhere from four to eight to 10 feet because of the torque that that kind of motion generates usually the first thing that will fall are the cross arms that go on that pole. And eventually there's so much weight and so much torque on the line that the poles will snap, usually about four to five feet above the ground. Galloping. So in one of these recent Midwest ice storms, I forget which state it was, um, but sometime in the last month, I remember seeing on Twitter uh, for any of our viewers that uh, kind of follow some of the different weather Twitter accounts, there were some videos of the lines galloping and I've never seen anything like that before, but they really do. It's not like they're swaying. It's a very different motion uh, from just your typical sway. It, it is. It's, it's very different. And, and just so everyone knows, power lines are not stretched tight. There's a certain amount of what we call sag. Uh, we have our linemen that build line, um, they, they have to have that in there. Of course, obviously, they have to have ground clearance, but that's meant for uh, not only in the summer, but also in the winter as aluminum uh, becomes cold, it, it shrinks, if you will. So there is some play in that, in that line. But when, an, when cold weather happens and when you get that amount of ice, it actually can be even a, a tenth of an inch of ice, the stronger the wind, that can set up a galloping motion. And, and again, because it's not in rhythm, uh, that's when you, you get opposing torques, if you will, on the line and on, and on the pole or the structure, even on steel towers. In fact, I, I sent an image tonight of a steel tower transmission line that just couldn't take the torque and it crumpled like a piece of gum tinfoil. Now, for folks here in the Carolinas, some of us get a lot of ice storms. You know, places along the Blue Ridge, I've seen anywhere from four to five uh, different ice events just this winter uh, and last fall. Um, but other places don't see ice as much. You know, Jared, before the show, was talking about how it's been uh, back to 2014, the last time the low country in South Carolina saw an ice storm. And before that, um, records are not, it's not very frequent. Now, for folks here, what level of ice accumulations cause serious damage? Is it a tenth of an inch, a quarter of an inch, or do you have to get up to higher amounts for you to see more damage? As far as structural damage is concerned, um, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Generally, when uh, it kind of depends on how well a utility has taken care of their right-of-ways, to, to be very honest about it. 
If a utility has done a, a good job of keeping their right-of-ways clear and have a good setback as far as some of the taller pine trees that you all have out there, um, if they've done a good job with that in a lower end event, say a level two event, for example, on the index, um, the tree damage may not be as much. When we start to see structural damage is when you're getting into ice that's probably greater than a half an inch with wind speeds above 25 miles an hour. Uh, so, and, and you'll see some photos here in just a little bit where we've had some ice uh, accumulation on our power line that's close to three inches. It's phenomenal. And so the, I don't care if your utility poles are made of concrete or made of steel. It doesn't matter because the torquing action will eventually when combined with the, the wind and the weight of the ice uh, will eventually bring those structures down. But the wind is, is absolutely a critical factor. Very cool. Thank you. Well, I think Melissa has a question next. Well, one of the things that you've mentioned was like it, it, at an index level of two. So the, the index actually goes up to a level five. So could you briefly just give us an idea of from zero to five, what type of, what type of damage, what type of um, uh, disruption that we would see with those particular um, index values? Sure. I'll just start at the bottom end of the scale. Uh, you can actually have just a very little thin film of ice, much like what northern Oklahoma is experiencing tonight. Uh, we don't, in the utility industry, we don't worry too much if the wind speeds are, are below 15 miles per hour um, because they, they won't cause the kind of galloping that I just described earlier. So our biggest concern for our line personnel at that point would be simply getting to an outage on, on maybe some of the roads that become slick and hazardous. That's a large part of, of, of a level one. If there are outages related to ice, it's probably from a tree limb that's fallen uh, across a line, something like that. A matter of maybe two to four to six hours to get that outage back on in, in a very reasonable time. A level two gets a little bit uh, higher, especially on the wind speeds and, and maybe ice in the quarter inch range. Um, that's typically what we see uh, the beginning of uh, what I would call a little bit more extensive tree damage. With a level three, that's when we begin to see structural damage. Um, and, and, and again, the, the ice ranges, I think on our index, the, the maximum amount of ice that we have showing is an inch and a half average. That would be equated to roughly three inches radial. Um, but an inch and a half average ice, which I'll, I'll throw something out here. You all may not know this, but the National Weather Service, uh, when I first talked to Steve, um, and maybe to this day, they don't uh, deal in what we in the utility business call radial ice. That, that's a foreign concept to them. So it's average ice accretion. In, in other words, for us, it's, you would measure from the top of the conductor to the top of the ice. That's the NWS average or top of the fence post to the top of the ice, something, something like that. So I found that to be pretty interesting because in our business, we, we look more at uh, gauge it more on radialized, but I had to adjust the index because of that, the, the way the National Weather Service counted for that. So as the wind speeds get higher and as the ice amounts grow larger um, and the temperatures again stay below freezing at 32, um, that's when you can get into a level four uh, index uh, or on the index 
that's when we begin to see not only damage to distribution system networks, but also high voltage system networks. The, the long steel towers that you might see that, that uh, go out across the countryside that are transmitting power from a power plant to substations in, in the hinterlands. A level five uh, is what I term absolutely catastrophic. It could mean that there is so much damage to the high voltage system network and to the distribution system network that people could be without power for multiple weeks. And we've seen that several times. That's amazing that, you know, it's, it's hard to believe sometimes the power that just the, you know, ice can have and the damage that it can do. Now, while you're talking, one of the things that you brought up was talking about the National Weather Service. So you've done a lot of collaboration with the National Weather Service and, and people within the National Weather Service for this particular index. And I know it got its start in Oklahoma, but have you actually spread it out outside of Oklahoma to, to work with um, those NWS offices that might be in other areas that are also impacted by the, these ice storms? I, I have. I, I have uh, spoken with the folks down at NWS Peachtree City down in Atlanta. Uh, I've spoken in Boston uh, in the in the Northeast. Have good friends that work at the National Weather Service offices up in North Dakota. Uh, so literally all around the the continent. If it if it can have ice uh, and visiting with, uh, I talked to some of the folks that that did some ice research up in uh, NWS Topeka. Uh, Kansas uh, last year and and shared some of our information with them. I've also gone across the border into Toronto, Canada and had some good discussions with the folks at Environment Canada there. So uh, we've been very blessed that over the last few years, uh, the in, the interest in ice and, and the index has really grown, not just here in Oklahoma, but across the country. In fact, this week, I have to tell you, because of some of the ice that was being forecast in the upper peninsula of Michigan and now in the southern part of Michigan, although it's kind of retreated to the north now, uh, I got a request yesterday via my Gmail account from the Detroit Free Press newspaper and they wanted permission to reproduce some of our graphics, which was great. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so you've been talking a lot about the, uh, I guess, uh, your work with uh, energy companies and uh, power lines and, and such, but are there any other industries out there to use this index? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there are some transportation companies that uh, use the index um, for road conditions, that kind of thing. Uh, we have some uh, cable companies that are also uh, have a big interest in, in the index because uh, there are still places around the country where a, a lot of their cable infrastructure is overhead. It's not underground. Oh, that's cool. Um, and something else, just kind of curiosity, because I'm, I'm kind of a science guy myself. When you're talking, when describing the galloping, is that is that like a form of resonance that builds within the line as the wind picks up? Not necessarily resonance, but... Um, be, be, it, it, it's it's so similar to and I I love that we have the airplane in the background there because um, once that that type of wing formation, if you will, begins to form with the ice, and it can occur even with a tenth of an inch of ice, just a little bit of, of shape that that takes place on that conductor, and once the wind begins to pick up, uh, it, it will it will cause the the conductor to rise and, and fall. 
And, and when it does that, that's when opposing torques, if you will, begin to form. And that's what can begin the structural damage to the, to the structures. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And uh, just going into that, I guess going forward from that, is there any memories that you can think of off the top of your head that are, that are pretty, uh, I guess, high end events for the Carolinas? Well, we talked earlier about, uh, I want to say it was around February 10th through the 14th, something like that, maybe right before Valentine's Day of 2014. Uh, I recall that uh, Eastern Georgia, uh, much of Northern South Carolina, maybe up into uh, uh, South Central North Carolina, there was a pretty large ice event then. I think Jared may have have uh, talked about that a little bit too. That was, that's one that I can remember. Uh, and then most recently, uh, this, uh, I believe in early December of this year, there was a snow and ice event that extended into the far northeastern corner of Georgia, also northern and northwestern South Carolina and uh, western North Carolina into central North Carolina. That's good information there. And uh, just uh, one last question before I kick it over to Evan here. Uh, is it, do you guys know of anyone outside of the United States that, that uses this index? Uh, other than Environment Canada and some of the folks uh, with utilities up in uh, uh, the Toronto area, I'm not sure if anyone else in, in another country is using it uh, or not. I will say this. Just last week, um, <laughs> this, this had never happened. So we've I've been monitoring our website now for the better part of seven or eight years, and I have never seen uh, an, a National Weather Service ice, because we use uh, National Weather Service ice forecasts off the NDFD. I had never, ever seen ice accumulation in the forecast for any part of California. Now, I've seen snow all the time, but... Last week, there was a, a system approaching, and they actually had in the forecast in the far northeastern corner of California about a tenth of an inch of ice. I'd never seen it before, so you never say never. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll kick it over to Evan now. I think he's got a couple more questions, or maybe Scotty does. So, Sid, everyone loves to talk about extremes. It's one of the things you've been talking about over the last few weeks. Um, we already mentioned the 2014 event here, and you mentioned the three inches of ice on some of the power lines out in Oklahoma, which is just hard to even imagine. What are some of the biggest events that you can remember that you know hit that Category 5 or the, the index level 5? Well, there are, there are four or five that really come to mind, uh, Evan. 2000, the year 2000 uh, in southeastern Oklahoma uh, was a devastating ice storm. I know for just our electric cooperatives, and of course there, there are 27 electric co-ops in the state of Oklahoma. There's Oklahoma Gas and Electric, a large investor-owned utility, public service company of Oklahoma, Division of American Electric Power out of Ohio, and then Empire District, those three investor-owned utilities. But Eastern Oklahoma in that 2000 event, um, there, there were outages that extended for about three weeks uh, in that particular event. Uh, thousands and thousands of power poles that were lost. And then, of course, the tree damage. There's a lot more trees in eastern Oklahoma than there is in western Oklahoma. But uh, another event was in January of 2002. Uh, I, I think Scotty, I sent Scotty a picture of a uh, a conductor and a, 
uh, one of our linemen or one of the linemen that works for one of our co-ops has a Coke can. And uh, that was the, the event that I remember that's almost three inches of ice um, on that line. It's about five and a half inches radial. It was just phenomenal. It, it rained, literally freezing rain for two and a half days. Um, much like I think um, uh, Melissa may correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say 1998 uh, in Montreal, Canada was one of the worst ice storms on the North American continent. And they were, they had five transmission feeds into Montreal. Only two were left standing and the city of Montreal, which has millions of people, uh, in there, in that area, uh, was down to two transmission feeds, which would have had them out of power had those gone down and, and affected lots of people. 2007 was probably the worst ice storm in Oklahoma. 640,000 people out of power anywhere from three days up to two weeks. 2010 was another one. In between that, in 2009, a very devastating ice storm across northern Arkansas into Kentucky. Uh, I think that was probably one of Kentucky's worst ever ice storms that, that they have had. Uh, and then, of course, more recently, we talked about 2014 uh, in Georgia and South Carolina. Those are the ones that, that come to mind almost immediately. We've got the picture of the ice or the Coke can with that. Yeah, matter of fact, it's scrolling through right now on the stream. That is just incredible. Thank you. <laughs> It, that was that was one that everyone here calls the mother of all ice storms, and that was in 2002. Sid, we have a few uh, viewer questions. Before we get that, um, I was going to ask you, uh, this index, is it is it pretty solid, or do you think in the next year or two, as more research is done, that maybe there could be some tweaking to, uh, to the index? It's really interesting you bring that up, Scotty, because I've actually, just within the last month, tweaked a little bit of the descriptors that are in the index when it comes to uh, the types of uh, damage descriptions. And the reason that I've had to do that is what we found. Um, remember I mentioned about utility right-of-ways. Um, really good utilities, and I'm not trying to label anyone as being a bad utility, but those that really do a good job of keeping their right-of-ways clear uh, it's just proven, it's a proven fact, they have less damage from trees when they have an ice event. So uh, the, the bad thing about that is, is, as we all know, people are pretty proud of their trees. So they, they don't like to have them cut, they don't like to, to have them cleared, but from a utility standpoint, the better the condition of your right-of-way, the less impact what I would call a, a minor ice event will have on outages. Um, so I've actually gone in to the index uh, descriptors beginning with, I believe, a level two and added some language. I think you've got the, the chart there, the newly revised chart that has a little bit uh, different descriptions. But as far as the ice amounts uh, and the temperature amounts, obviously below 32 um, and the wind amounts, we have not changed those parameters from the first day that I met with Steve Pills. And I guess, you know, just listen to this. Like I said, you know, I, I've known ice storms, I've forecasted for them, but one thing I guess I didn't really think too much into impacts was just how much wind uh, impacts ice storms. You know, 
Uh, if you have a quarter inch of ice but really no wind, it may not do as much damage as if you have maybe a tenth of an inch of ice and a lot of wind. Yes. Uh, we, we had an event. I want to say it was about 2008 or 2009. The largest investor-owned utility here in Oklahoma is Oklahoma Gas and Electric Company. Um, this That particular event um, happened in the late evening hours, probably around 10 at night. It started to around 5 or 6 in the morning. Very little ice, maybe maybe a tenth of an inch of ice, but the sustained winds were in the 40 to 45 range. Sustained winds, not gusts. There were gusts that were close to 60 miles an hour, 55, 58 miles an hour. But those sustained winds caused OG&E to lose about 4,000 cross arms on utility poles in the Oklahoma City area. Had a lot of people out of power for several days because of that particular event. And it was only a tenth of an inch of ice, but a lot of sustained wind. So that was was conviction enough for me to know that wind is is a huge uh, uh, parameter. Definitely. So you're talking about structural damage, Miss uh, Sue. Uh, Zah, I was watching tonight. I hope I pronounced your, your last name right there, Sue. Uh, she was talking about when you talk about structure damage, do you mean the power line structures or is there actually damage to homes? Which I know we've been we've been scrolling some pictures that you sent us and we saw, the, I guess that was a cell phone tower that uh, that probably caved in from the, the ice accretion. But uh, can ice do damage to other structures, maybe besides power lines and, and things like that? Sure. Roof, roof damage is one mostly because of tree limbs that um, when they get a, a lot of ice on them. And of course, that a lot of that depends on the type of tree as well. If it's a if it's a tree that's fairly brittle in nature, we have these things in Oklahoma called Bradford pears, one of the worst uh, susceptible trees to ice storm damage because their limbs just break very quickly. Uh, so depending upon the kind of tree, uh, those those things can fall through a, a roof pretty easily. The picture that you saw, interestingly, was not a cell phone tower. It was a transmission line tower that would normally carry high voltage power lines of about 138,000 volts per phase. And it literally, it was in western Kansas, out around Goodland, Kansas. And my son's a highway patrolman in western Kansas. And he took that picture there were about 30 of those steel tower structures that because of the torque and the amount of wind out there in the in western Kansas and a good three quarters of an inch of ice, it literally dropped those steel uh, structures. That's amazing. Um, uh, another question is this one really wasn't on, on our, our questions to ask, but I know Oklahoma has a lot of wind farms and a lot of wind mills. Uh, is there cases where maybe the ice freezes those up as uh, if you have a pretty significant ice storm? That's a great question, Scotty. Um, interestingly enough, these wind turbines, uh, even the, the more modern wind turbines, uh, almost have a design in the fiberglass blade that much like an aircraft wing, that they can uh, shoot some current through that to to melt the ice, but generally speaking, they'll the, the wind farms will try to, to shut those things down in a heavy in a heavy icing event. Light to moderate ice usually doesn't bother them too much. But uh, I, I will tell you, and you can find this on YouTube. There's actually some pretty good video out there of wind turbines that have fairly moderate ice on them and 
when the ice begins to melt, it will throw that stuff a long way. <laughs> in Charleston, after the 2014 ice storm, uh, a couple days afterwards when the ice started melting, um, it was the first big freeze for our beautiful, new, relatively new cable stay bridge, the Ravenel Bridge. And ice started falling off of the large cables on the bridge, crashing onto the road deck. And several people's cars were crushed by ice. For, amazingly, nobody was hurt or killed. Um, but it got the name the Ravalanche uh, <laughs> after after that. And so, and so since then, they've been a little more proactive about um, about keeping that closed around uh, icing events. But yeah, we've uh, you know that's definitely something that we've had to that we didn't think about. You know, it was like we never thought we'd get that kind of ice storm that close to the coast, and everyone was like, well. Should we put heaters in the cables? Um, that was actually a question that the governor was asked uh, after all that went down. So, yeah, some fascinating things. You got to be careful that the, the aftermath of these is uh, is often an issue. It's interesting you bring that up, Jared, because uh, in the electric utility industry, there are two times when uh, you get concerned about ice. One is is obviously when it's happening. But then a secondary concern is when the ice begins to melt and fall off your line, because that will cause the line to bounce as well. So you're concerned, uh, obviously, when the temperatures are in the, say, 28 to 32 degree range. But once it starts above 32 and, and gets into the 33 to, say, 35 range and that ice starts shedding itself off of the lines, it can cause power outages as well. So there's two times that we get concerned about that. That's crazy. Well, Sid, we really enjoyed having you on tonight. It's been a fascinating topic, and I believe this will probably go down. And we always do a year-end review of some of our top shows, and I know for me, I can't speak for everyone else, but I think they'll agree with me. I've learned a lot tonight about uh, about ice, uh, ice, and, and how impactful it can be. And I knew wind was a factor, but I didn't realize how big of a factor wind was in, in this. So uh, we certainly uh, appreciate having you on tonight. Uh, before we uh, go into our next break, if, if followers want to uh, keep up with the SPIA index, and uh, I know you have a website that you run, how, how can folks do that and what should they be looking for? Sure. The, the index uh, is located at uh, www.spia-index.com. Um, we, we take some, we, we have a free service out 24 to 36 hours in advance, but after that, it's a subscription based service. I have quite a few utilities that uh, participate in that. I also am a part of a, a website called nationaloutages.com. I think I shared some of those graphics with you as well. Uh, that's a little bit of a new venture for me, but we track primarily electric cooperative outages nationwide. Uh, and they uh, also have my index as a part of that website. So it, it's been a it's been a good venture. Well, maybe uh, if there's an ice storm ever knocking on our door, maybe we can shoot you an email and you can kind of give us a little uh, tease of what, what it may bring. But uh, we certainly have appreciated uh, you spending some time with us tonight. Uh, stick around with us if you want to. We're going to discuss a little bit about uh, the new climate report that came out sure. um, after this break. Thank you, Scotty. 
Thank you very much. And I'll go ahead and introduce this break. This is video we got in from the National Hurricane Center. As we mentioned at the start of the show, meeting this week with FEMA and local emergency managers, because this may not be hurricane season, but this is preparedness season. So with the government shutdown over, they were able to meet and they provided us with this update, a little insight as to what they're talking about there at the National Hurricane Center in Miami. Let's take a listen. Welcome back to the National Hurricane Center. I'm Ken Graham, director here. And you know, we got a, we got a big class going on this week. We have emergency managers from different places uh, around the country. Back behind me, the training session's going on. And, and why that's important is emergency management is one of our biggest partners here at the Hurricane Center, making the big decisions out there based on the science and the forecast that, that we're giving. And some of the things that we're learning this week include, you know, the details and, and getting the information, the science to make those big decisions. One of them is uh, a time of arrival tool. And we're going to bring Robbie Bergen here in a second. I want to ask him about that because one of, one of the big factors in, in making these decisions are when are the, the tropical storm force winds are going to arrive. So Robbie is stepping in here and uh, Robbie, this uh, time of arrival tool is, is pretty much new. I mean, using it for the last few years. Can you tell us about it and why it's important? Yeah, sure. So let's like, assume you have to drive somewhere important tomorrow, say Orlando, and you need to be there by a certain time. So Many of us have probably gone into Google Maps and other navigation apps that tell us exactly how long, long it'll get there. But they also give a range of time because we know we might hit traffic, there might be some slowdowns. We, we can't exactly nail what time we're gonna get there. This wind timing tool for hurricanes is exactly the same thing. We know a hurricane is coming our way. We know the winds are gonna start at a certain time, but we have to prepare for if they become a little bit earlier than we're expecting. And it's like Google Maps, essentially. We're just trying to predict what's the range of times that those winds could start because once the tropical storm force winds start at your location, your preparations have to be done. So we want people to have enough time to prepare before a storm hits. And that's what we hope this new tool does. Yeah. The other part is storm surge. And we're spending a lot of the afternoon in this class on storm surge. And, and the person that leads the storm surge program for us is Jamie Rome. Um, Jamie, you know, we've covered on some of these Facebook lives in the past. We've talked about the definition of storm surge and we, you know, we've covered um, basically the storm surge is the leading cause of fatalities when it comes to tropical systems. It's the water, 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 water. We're stressing a lot of water. So back behind us and using some software, um, how, how do emergency managers use the information that we give a, a, a storm surge forecast of X number of feet? What is a storm surge, uh, you know, that information, what does the emergency manager do with that information? Well, a lot of people don't realize that the reason that we evacuate here in the U.S. is based off water, specifically storm surge. So what we're teaching, these are emergency managers right behind you, the people, uh, men and women who call evacuations and make those life safety decisions. So what we're teaching them, and you can see the very software that they would use in a hurricane, um, what we're teaching them is how to use the storm surge forecast and data which come from the National Hurricane Center in a live event um, and make evacuation decisions. And so you're walking them through these exercises, helping them to learn what they would do and how they would do it in an actual event. Yeah, so we're really excited to, uh, to have the, uh, the, the folks down at the Hurricane Center, uh, emergency management folks, uh, FEMA folks, uh, the Hurricane Center staff. Uh, finally, uh, I know January was kind of a well, they were off all January, so they weren't able to do a lot of stuff. So we're, we're glad to see that they're back planning for what can be another active tropical season. Uh, with that, talking about tropics, uh, I'll let uh, James post up that map again. The 2018 climate summary was just released today, and uh, it showed that we had several uh, natural disasters in the United States 
to uh, to happen, and a lot of those were tropical related. We had some uh, tornado outbreaks in the uh, obviously the Midwest, but also uh, like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, places like that. We had another hell event in Texas and Colorado, which that seems to happen a lot, and obviously the uh, wildfires out in the West. And uh, Jared, we we kind of look forward to seeing these new uh, graphics come out every year, but seems like it's the same old story in the same places. Yeah, the one thing that we didn't have uh, was the uh, billion-dollar ice disaster that we had in 2017. Uh, you know, kind of a, a, a topical for tonight. Uh, but yeah, pretty much everything else. You know, it, it, again, very. You know, you know what was supposed to be a quiet hurricane season ended up being uh, rather active for many of us in the Carolinas and uh, into the Gulf Coast. Um, but yeah, I mean, this it, is uh, it, 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 a lot of the same, and 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 again, you know, there's uh, it, it's still very warm. You know, we were looking at, I was looking at some of the state breakdowns here. Let me get that back out, and 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 if you look at if you look at that, so so for example, North Carolina had its wet wettest year on ever ever, um, and South Carolina was like, you know, the one hundred sixteenth. Well, these are backwards you know that's kind of funny it's like so is, i'm gonna have to do some math here on the fly and that's not my the, strong story. what is that the ninth wettest record ninth wettest year in south carolina Melissa would know yeah <laughs> yeah but regardless to say it's been hot it's been it's been rainy and tropical systems have certainly not been uh uh helpful at least to help eliminate drought we you know again we started last year and with a rather severe drought in the southeast and then may happened and cleared that out and then florence happened and that really put the end to that definitely so and i don't know if we have that graphic james i know you're doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes but uh there was uh the um, highest minimum temperature so it's like the highest low temperature uh map that north carolina and virginia experienced the highest low temperature um, year on record. And maybe Melissa, you can maybe describe that better. Cause I think I just butchered that, but, uh, basically the, it was the year, the warmest year that we've seen low temperatures, right? Okay. <laughs> so yeah. So the minimum temperatures, when we look at minimum temperatures, we look at, you know, it's usually the lowest temperature that we see and you can have two extremes of that. You can have a, a, a low, a, a low minimum temperature and a high minimum temperature. And we did see a lot of record high minimum temperatures. Um, you know, this time last year in February 2018, um, we were looking at, I believe it was close to, I think I mentioned this in last week's show, it was 100, almost 150 tied or broken high minimum temperatures here in South Carolina. And numbers were similar for North Carolina too. And February 2018 went down as the warmest by average temperature, uh, February for the state of South Carolina. And that beat out 1927, which had been the warmest February on record. So we've gone a long, long, uh, long period of time. And we were warm. I mean, we had record warmth um, with the maximum temperatures, but it really was those minimum temperatures not dropping as low as they typically do that really kind of push that warming, um, you know, th that average temperature to be so warm in February and throughout the year. Yeah, and so we're expecting to see warm temperatures here in the uh, the Carolinas um, tomorrow. A lot of records 
uh, potentially could be broken with uh, the, the high temperatures. I know a lot of the climate sites in North Carolina were uh, targeted to go above uh, or be the warmest um, February 7th on record. And I think the case in South Carolina, but there's also a big cold front. I've seen uh, Chris just had a radar up. I was going to toss it to him. Uh, we're seeing this uh, cold front move into the area. Uh, it's not really going to show us a lot of uh, action here in the Carolinas, but one place that is seeing a lot of action tonight right now, Chris, is in Nashville. I will have a, uh, a thought that you might like to be there right now chasing. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll pass on that. It's way too, way too populated. But, yeah, just looking at the radar right now, Scotty, uh, there's a tornado one just southwest of downtown Nashville. And looking at the uh, radar from actually uh, uh, Nashville International Airport, it's a, it's not one of the WSR-88Ds that the National Weather Service uses. It's a, a TWDR uh, terminal uh, Doppler radar. But anyways, there's a nice little couplet right on circle it right there. And that is going to take a beeline right into downtown Nashville. So if you guys uh, you know have, have friends or family really anywhere in downtown Nashville, south side, southwest side, uh, you might want to give them a call and let them know that uh, there's some pretty nasty weather about uh, 20 minutes off to the southwest. But uh, going going in from that, uh, you know, basically they got this big cold front moving across the nation, and uh, probably going to be some flooding, uh, flash flood potential across uh, eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina overnight. Or I don't, I don't know about overnight, but uh, throughout the night and uh, throughout tomorrow morning. Yeah, definitely. So, so if you're listening to us right now or watching, uh, we recommend you follow Nash Severe WX. Uh, that's the uh, Nashville Severe Weather account in uh, Twitter. So definitely, uh, definitely go follow those folks. And before we kind of close tonight and transition um, off the program, I know it's really warm, but we're expecting it to cool back off. And, and Evan, I've seen that you made a graphic earlier today talking about uh, even though we've had warm temperatures, it doesn't mean winter's over with yet. Correct. So over the last 50 years in uh, Asheville, we've had a high temperature greater than or equal to 70 degrees uh, on February 6th or earlier 13 times. That's a lot of numbers. But in, in all those 13 years where we hit 70 degrees on or before February 6th, every single one of those years recorded snowfall in the months of March and April. Some of those months recorded as much as six inches. Uh, one year even had two and a half inches of snow as late as April 24th which is extremely late. Matter of fact, that's likely one of the latest snowfall records in Asheville. I'm not, not positive about that, but just off the, off the fly, it would be my guess. So no, it's not springtime. It feels like it, and today was beautiful across much North Carolina, but this is not full-time spring, and the cold air will be coming back. When you wake up Saturday morning, it's not going to feel like it did today. So be prepared for that. Uh, Jared, I was going to ask you, how's your allergies? Uh, there? <laughs> so, yeah, not not great, Bob. I mean, not great, Scotty. So yeah, fake spring, folks. It's it's fake spring. Um, you know, as I talked about earlier in 2017, we had in Charleston, we had previously the warmest um, that we were on record, and then 2018 broke that. Um, but then March, I mean, we had, I mean, plunged right back into the 20s. A lot of people. Uh, very upset about some of their uh, personal gardens and you can imagine how the farmers felt about their agriculture there. So yeah, again, fake spring. Um, you know, we got a record high today of 78 here in Charleston. We could get 81 tomorrow here. Uh, the weather service is forecasting 81. They're going for it. Um, and then, and then 79 again on Friday, then that cold front moves through Friday night and then we're back down to 54 
on Saturday. But everything's creeping back up. Again, the, the, the pattern is favoring warmer than normal temperatures down here at the coast. Um, that subtropical ridge is going to get suppressed a little bit, but it's going to get kind of, we're just going to kind of be in that the in between there. And that's going to bring us some unsettled weather as well. So, uh, but we're enjoying it while we got it, Scotty. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been really fantastic, except for the need to carry a handkerchief. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Uh, we've been in the seventies the past two days and we could approach 80 tomorrow. So uh, no complaints for me. If it's not going to snow, I wish we could just keep this weather around. So uh, before we log off, uh, Chris, I think you got a new update for out of Nashville. Yeah, absolutely. Scotty. I was just checking the national weather service chat uh, out of Nashville and they, uh, they were confirming a tornado that was, uh, uh, let's see here, far northwest Williamson near Cheatham and Dixon border, uh, 50 knots, blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyways, tornado debris signature, mall marker 183 on I-40. So confirmed tornado on I-40 uh, near Nashville, near mile marker 183. Uh, not good. So, uh, so yeah, watch that. If you if you know folks in Nashville, make sure they um, they know that. So before we jump off, I think Evan had something else to add before we, uh, before we log off tonight. Yeah, so today is Wednesday, not Thursday. I thought I've been a day ahead all week. That cold front will be coming through tomorrow night across West North Carolina. Temperatures will be much colder on Friday, not Saturday, as I said. So I got to get my days of the week straight. I'm just confused. It's okay. T today was my last day of the work week, so it is actually not Friday today. So, uh, but anyways, uh, thank you guys for joining us tonight. Uh, next week, we have uh, Ed Menasori on from WeatherStim. Uh, we've been able, obviously, tonight we are streaming the uh, Vanderbilt University Can We've uh, been able to form a partnership with those folks. And next week, we're going to explore about that. We're going to talk about what WeatherStim does and how we're going to be able to work together um, throughout the coming months and maybe years uh, of, of how we can uh, help, uh, help each other out. So we're uh, looking forward to having Ed on with us uh, next week. And uh, so we hope that you will join us uh, then. So for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe out there and uh, enjoy the warm weather tomorrow. And bundle, oh, there's some good lighting. Bundle up with the cold weather coming this weekend.